three, two, one. Welcome everyone to There Will Be Bugs, an insect podcast where we cover a variety of entomological topics. I am one of your hosts, Ben. And I'm Zilla. Today we're going to be discussing forensic entomology and uh, carrion decay by insects. Special spooky episode. Special spooky episode. I actually think we have a There Will Be Bugs first, which is that we might want to do a content warning because we're going to be talking about bodies. Yes. Dead bodies and we, decomposition. We are going to be talking about dead bodies. Uh, are you going to be very graphic? To an extent, yes. But I I would like to preface that for when I go over to the stages of decay, this can apply to not only humans, but really any sort of body. So dead animal of some sort, these processes are the same for animals as they are for humans, for the most part. So if that's not your thing, this might not be the one for you. But if it is... You'll get to learn all (laughs) about the different insects that uh, help with the decomposition of carrion, which is a really important service insects provide to us. Yeah, that's true. We're getting to the end of October. I've been chipping away at my insect collection for Ento. University of Kentucky is currently on fall break right now, so that's been nice. It's been two days. It's a two-day break, so I guess you can kind of call that a vacation. <laughs> I am I imagine most students, especially grad students, are still just working. Just trekking right through it, Just huh? Just trying to catch up at this point. We're going to start our conversation with the stages of decay. Can you take a guess on to how many stages of decay there are? Um, four. Sorry, there's five. Ah. I had to double check my notes. Um, And I'm going based on the book, uh, the insect textbook by Gillian and uh, I can't remember the other author's names, but I'm going based on a insect textbook an entomology textbook. Uh, The stages of decay usually get different names depending on whether you're looking at them from like a medical textbook or you're using Wikipedia or whatever, but they all represent the same concepts. Uh, They might just have different names. So we'll jump right into the first stage. And the first stage is called initial decay or fresh decay. Uh, This involves only the microorganisms present on the body at the stage of death. This is more of a a pathologist term. Um, And the next few terms that are stages within first decay are also more medical terms than they are entomological terms, but they were still interesting and kind of important. So within first decay, the first thing to happen is called paler mortis. This happens between 15 and 20 minutes after death, and that's when the body starts getting that paleness to it that you hear about in movies. Okay. This paleness occurs with people with light skin. Uh, doesn't You can't really see it with people with darker skin. Uh, and this is caused because gravity causes the blood to sink into the lower parts of the body, and the capillary action in the circulatory is kind of broken down because there's no, the heart isn't pumping the blood through the circulatory system anymore. Within this stage, within this paler mortis, 
the cornea also starts to cloud. So the eyes will start to get cloudy and kind of like milky or foggy. Hmm. The next term within this fresh decay or initial decay is liver mortis. Uh, This is the second stage of death. Eerie. Mm. Uh, This happens 20 to 30 minutes post-mortem. It's interesting that death has stages, you know? I mean, it makes sense for... For forensics and and but it seems like if you're the one dying, there's like one stage. There's one important stage. Well, this this is it's it's your body does not agree uh, within the second stage. Right. If you're li- if for the living people around you, there's you know there's I can see there being more than one stage. But people trying to figure out what happened. Yeah, and not even your cells listen to your I guess death. But we'll get to that to more of the next phase. But So in the second stage, this happens 20 to 30 minutes post-mortem. The blood continues to settle into the lower parts of the body. So whether like the person's laying on the ground or like, I don't know why they would be standing up, but maybe, or if they, I guess if they're hanged, uh, mm-hmm. like the blood would flow yeah. to the, the, their feet, basically. And this causes a purplish slash reddish color to form on the skin in the parts of the body that are lower, you know, closer to the earth. I had this creepy book, this, I don't know, it wasn't a creepy book, but I had this book when I was a kid. You might, you maybe you're going to cut this out, but I'm going to share it anyway, just in case. And it talked about how when people got together to witness hangings. It used to be kind of like a very festive atmosphere. And because of, probably because of Peeler Mortis at first, but because of this like blood settling, when men were hanged, they would always get a boner. And that would be like a really exciting part of the process of (laughs) watching a hanging for the crowd. (laughs) I have, I have not heard of this. I've, you know, I've, Heard that you empty your bowels after after you're deceased, but I had not heard about this. And so that what kind of this was a book you read when you? My were... mom was a librarian, and she gave me all kinds of books. And I don't think she read a lot of them before she gave them to me. And, <laughs> and that it was like a book of you know weird history facts, and that was one of them. That is definitely a weird. The, the crowd would cheer once the. <laughs> It's the final boner. As the spirit, the spirit had left the penis. Mm-hmm. They say that men have two heads. <laughs> I guess one. I guess one goes before the other. <laughs> Anyways, so this purplish red color forms in the skin of the lower parts of the cadaver. This is again liver mortis that we're talking about. This is not usually observable to the human eye until about two hours after death when the blood really starts to accumulate. But within 20 to 30 minutes post-mortem, if you're someone with a, a microscope, you can observe this as the in the skin. Depending on the temperature, the blood will flow faster in warmer conditions. So this is, this is onset faster in warmer conditions. The, and the discoloring does not occur in skin in contact with the ground or like a table or whatever this this body is on because the calipari- uh, the the capillaries in the skin are compressed and so the blood basically can't flow into oh, those can't pool in that area yeah yeah so if like if you're on your back when you're dead um, you'll have this reddish coloring form. Uh, like on your sides and like maybe if there's like, like the, the ring on a bathtub 
<laughs> yes, uh, ring on the on a bathtub, and you'll have blood form in some areas uh, that are low, but not touching something. But areas that are touching something, the cap- capillaries are compressed, so the blood can't flow in that. I made the mistake of screen peeking a few times while Ben was making notes for this episode, and there were many corpses. Most of them were like, you know, animated corpses. It's a nice little surprise. I don't know if I actually saw any photos of any real corpses in my research, but uh, the next stage within this first stage is Elgore Mortis, and that is when Elgore lost the race to George Bush. And, Stop it! <laughs> and Florida, the old people of Florida in Florida is, were really angry. Is the next stage, hanging Chad. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, no, that came first. Before, oh right, right. Before he right. lost, there yeah. was the hanging Chad. Hanging and Chad, boner, boner. <laughs> Alger Mortis. All right. <laughs> But uh, Elgore Mortis is the third stage of death. This is um, a change in the body ton- temperature until the ambient temperature, excuse me, the ambient temperature is matched. Uh, this is extremely variable. It depends on the ambient temperature, the body mass of the person, the clothing the person is wearing, any sort of insulation covering the body that's not clothing. So if they're like under a pile of rubble. Or also the conductivity of the surface the body is on. So this one's kind of the more gray area stage of when it's like actually occurs. Um, but it's, it is it is just classified as like when the body temperature of the cadaver, the temperature of the ambient air, that's Algor Morris. Uh, Algor Mortis. Uh, the next stage is probably the one most people are familiar with, and that's rigor mortis. This is the fourth stage of death. This usually occurs about two hours post-mortem. This is caused by a chemical reaction uh, in the muscles of the body. So this is what I was kind of talking about, where like the body isn't necessarily dead when the person passes away. You still have these muscles, you still have all these cells in your body that will still Uh, go through with these chemical reactions and one of them our muscles are going to try and continue to produce ATP post-mortem and since the person isn't breathing anymore the cells and the muscles aren't getting oxygen they're going to go through uh, anaerobic glycolysis if you go back to AP bio or whenever you took bio class in freshman year of high school yeah in high school 20 years ago Anaerobic means without a- oxygen, and glycolysis is the is this uh, respir- this is cellular respiration uh, reaction that is that happens in our bodies when we don't have oxygen. So um, this happens a lot with like athletes when they're like really. It's like when your muscles burn when you're kind of out of breath, right? Yeah, and that's and that's due to the byproduct of this, which is uh, lactic acid or one of the byproducts of that. And so like when you're not getting enough oxygen, when you're exercising, like you'll get burning in your muscles or your lungs or really anything that you're, uh, you're working. And that's because like the muscles are working so hard and you can't get enough oxygen to them. But this process still happens after you're 
not breathing anymore and your heart's not pumping. you're still all full of chemicals yeah, that you're still need to do stuff that are just chemicals. Exactly. So it's, I kind of compare it to when you, um, like if you were to cut a flower from a plant that hasn't opened yet and you put it in a vase and put it in a, with water and put it in sunlight, that flower will open even though it's no longer attached to the plant. And that's because all those cells are still photosynthesizing and, and also respiring. So this is kind of what happens. So the body doesn't realize it's dead all at once. Yeah, the body does not realize it's dead all at once. As this happens, the body uses up all the glycogen and then can't produce ATP anymore. So as this, you know, as your muscles are are producing ATP via anaerobic glycolysis. It eats up all the glycogen, uh, which is a sugar, and your muscles then, the, the way muscles work is the actin filaments and the myosin filaments kind of slide past each other when you're contracting your muscles. So when you contract your muscles, these thin filaments and these thick filaments kind of slide past each other. And to kind of hold them there to in contraction, a protein is formed that's sort of a glue that hold them contracted. And then like when you try and relax your muscle, you have these all these uh, enzymes and like ATP to break down that glue basically. However, now your body can't produce any more ATP and these muscles go through this contraction and this glue is formed and then they're stuck there because they can't then relax because there's no ATP to break that down. And that's why the, you know, muscles go stiff and bodies go stiff when, um, after, after death. Cool. Uh, Rigor mortis doesn't last forever though, right? It's like six hours or something. Yeah. Because then there's a point where like the, the, the glue just basically, naturally breaks down and at, you know after after a period of time the tissues just simply start breaking down because they can't maintain themselves that's why zombie movies are so unrealistic like they, everyone would just fall apart exactly long before they could chase you <laughs> you know across a field or whatever everybody would just decompose you would if you could just make it like a few weeks everything would everybody all the zombies would just fall apart and then you would be safe yeah all right, so we went through all these steps within the first stage of decay, and now we're into the this second stage of decay, and this is called putrefaction. This starts approximately two days post-mortem. This is when the body proteins start to break down and the tissues are no longer cohesive. Uh, so you, again, this very... Uh, you're alluding to like zombie movies of how the bodies would start breaking down. This is when really the your cells and your tissues are no longer cohesive and they start kind of breaking apart. The the body starts to emit uh, cadaverine and putrescine, and these are the distinct smells of decay when you're going by uh, a body. Uh, I don't know if you're going by bodies a lot, but if you're you know <laughs> past a dead animal on the side yeah. of the road, yeah. Over the summer, we drove past a deer that was like, we rode our motorcycles past a deer that was like cut in half in the middle of the road. And that had a pretty distinct, that's one of the great things about motorcycles, actually, is you really get to smell the roadkill. Also, I feel like the same person who named cadaverine and putrescine named unobtainium from the Avatar (laughs) movies. (laughs) James Cameron named these uh, scents, so... 
Do you know so. what the best James Cameron movie is? The Abyss. I'm just saying, if you're looking for a good spooky movie, everyone watch The Abyss if you haven't. Another part of putrefaction is the body starts to bloat. And this is from the gases released from the bacteria that are decaying the, uh, the tissues within the body. And so like these gases start moving into the circulatory system and like the body cavity and like these gases just start building up. And so you get that nice like, you know, bloated raccoon on the side of the road. Right, yeah. And then the digestive system also starts to consume itself. And the digestive system, so the stomach and the intestines are one of the first organs to break down in the human because you already have all these like active bacteria and these enzymes that are built just to break things down, including themselves when when things aren't maintained. Right. And they're a lot they again, they haven't gotten the memo that yeah, they're they, dead. And they, they they actually the back that bacteria probably doesn't care one way or the other, does it? No. It just wants to eat. It just does its job. Uh, The third stage after putrefaction is called black putrefaction. So this is super creative. (laughs) It's approximately 10 days post-mortem. This is usually the strongest smelling stage. The tissues of the body start turning black, hence black putrefaction. And... Gases continue to build in the uh, the body and the circulatory system until the pressure causes the body to basically rupture. Um, and this is only helped by like the tissues for the cohesion between the tissues further breaking down and like the, the tissues just don't want to stay together anymore. And then you get that uh, increased internal pressure and it's just, it just ruptures and it's Gross. glorious. At this stage in black putrefaction, the fats in your body start to liquefy and go rancid. Those are the more stable tissues in your body. So you can leave fat like a stick of butter out on the counter a lot longer than you could leave a steak out on the um, on the counter. These solid state fats are usually more stable than than flesh. Flesh. This stage, the black putrefaction stage is the most significant body uh, loss of mass and volume. So this is when the like the most decay is happening in, on on the corpse. The fourth stage is the butyric fermentation stage. This is usually 30 to 40 days postmortem. The Body and remaining tissues, usually tendons, cartilage, skin, hair, and nails, are starting to dry out now. Uh, Insect activity starts to decrease at this time, and butric acid is being produced by bacteria, causing a cheese smell. So butric acid is like the is what gives cheese its cheesy cheese smell. Uh, and I'm sure Cheez-Its, when they make Cheez-Its, they probably, like, put a little extra butric acid in there. I don't like Cheez-Its. Uh, they're okay. The fifth stage and last stage is dry decay. This is approximately three months after death. And this is when all, the only remaining tissues are dry skin, cartilage, and bones. At this point, 
you might be able to put a label on this body as skeletonized because really the only thing that's kind of hanging on is just like tough dry skin hair and like maybe the cartilage or like some tougher tendons between the joints of the bones. So that covers our stages of decay. How you feeling about that? Super. A lot of really descriptive words here. If you're really interested in this and it's kind of, it can be kind of gross, but it's also really fascinating. There's a lot of videos out in the world of people putting out um, dead pigs oh, or deer and, and doing stuff. time lapses yeah. of the decay. And I know these like this seems really gross, but it's also like there's a lot of like important scientific implications of this that I'll get into with forensic entomology. And we've learned a lot about being able to look at a body post-mortem and use use the insects to give us information about the uh, about the body but the time lapses are kind of really cool and it like I've you don't them. and you yeah. don't get the smell or anything and and they're kind they're less gory than you expect them yeah to be. it's yeah. not like there's blood everywhere yeah. or anything like that the body just kind of like gets a lot of maggots on it and like kind of swells up and then you have you can just see all the 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 insects moving back and forth off the body. Speaking of insects, we're going to get into the insects involved in the different stages of decay. So, the first insects on the scene of the crime are the califorids. These are your blowflies and your uh, muscadae, which are your houseflies. And these flies are so specialized, they can smell a dead body within minutes of it taking its last breath. Wow. Like they that's how quickly they can they can find a dead body. Uh, and so they are And they are stoked. They are stoked. It is going to be a feast for them and their kids. They find the body and just start laying their eggs. And this is usually in the easiest places to get into the body at first because the skin is still doing its skin thing. Sure. So that's going to be usually the mouth, uh, inside the nose, or inside the eyes, or also the genitalia. Any sort of like uh, orifice. Any hole will do. Is going to be the fastest way to get your eggs into this body. So during the second wave, you start getting some other flies and you get your sarcophagids. Those are your uh, flesh flies. And they went off when they named scar- sarcophagids. Yeah, That's, they did. That was good. It was very they good. They saw their opportunity and they took it. And then you also get additional blowflies, your Californids showing up late to the party. So you got your first ones to arrive and then you might get some uh, ones to come later with the sarcophagids to kind of join the party. And the larvae of these flies start to develop in the body and feed on the body. And then at this point within decay, we're starting to get into the putrefaction stage. Once the larva of flies, aka maggots, the that that's kind of the the general term for fly larvae is maggots, but I like calling them larvae. Once you but start, but it's spooky season, so we're gonna call them maggots. Okay, we'll call them maggots <laughs> for spooky season. So as soon as you start getting like larva in the body you're starting to get into the putrefaction stage of decay 
after the flies have started laying there, basically having, you know, orgies on these bodies and laying their eggs in them. Your uh, worst day is a fly's best day. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, After the the larvae of the fly start really infesting the body, you start getting uh, staphylinids, uh, sylphids, and uh, hysteridae beetles. So those are your rove beetles your burying beetles, and your clown beetles. They're next on the body. I like burying beetles. I think they're cool. I think they're cool. I, I do too, and I'm about to go on a tangent about them right. because I went down a rabbit hole with them. I can't but, wait. Uh, these beetles, the adult and larva, are not only feeding on the flesh, uh, like the carrion, but they're also feeding on the fly larva. Florlar larva? <laughs> they're feeding on the fly larva. Or the maggots. Uh, so this is... You think the flies are having a good time? These beetles that it's you like, have... It's like a buffet. <laughs> they a, get to eat all of their it, favorite things. It is an all-you-can-eat buffet, not only for the parents, but the kids. Like, this is a golden corral. <laughs> <laughs> the food quality is about the same. Uh, you have beetles and flies everywhere, and the kids and the parents go home happy. No sneeze guard, though, on the buffet. <laughs> Right. That's so, the biggest health concern. So we're taught you you brought up burying beetles and I wanted to go on a tangent about burying beetles. They're also called sexton beetles. Uh, these are beetles within Sylphidae, Nicrophorinae. They will bury small carcasses and secrete antibacterial and antifungal substances on the carcass and then lay their eggs in the in the carcass so this obviously probably the the burying beetles aren't doing this with a full you know deer carcass or human carcass so these beetles will bury smaller carcasses like mice or maybe like snakes snakes yeah exactly and then they will very small squirrels (laughs) yes and then they will basically like vomit and poop out these antibacterial and antifungal substances on the carcass while it's like in the ground and then they will lay their eggs in the carcass and then the cool the even cooler thing about sexton beetles or burying beetles. Both the males and the females show parental care. So the parents will stay around, wait for the eggs to hatch, and then they will basi- they will regurgitate food for the little larva. Oh my god. And then if it, if it's a large enough carcass and uh, a single pair can't move it by themselves, multiple breeding pairs will kind of like team up and move the carcass to be able to bury it. Uh, So they'll work together in like a community and they will all lay their eggs in this carcass and then they will all hang around and like protect the young in a community. Takes a village, huh? It does take a village if you're a burying beetle. I might want to be a parent if I had (laughs) another group of parents who would bury a corpse with me and then we could raise our young together. Yeah, and you you can regurgitate food for all the babies. And then also the parents are fighting off competitors to keep the young safe. So ants or other kind of small predaceous insects they will just physically fight with those insects to try and keep them away um so that i love burying beetles they might be they might be like top five 
of the bugs that I know that are that I like. Yeah, and I really like them too. Hence why I got the uh, I got a tattoo of the American burying beetle on my chest, which is the only reason I know anything about them because Ben told me all about it while we were doing that tattoo. But... Yeah, and they're one of the few species of insects actually on the U.S. endangered species list. So they have like federal protection, which is very uncommon I for didn't an insect. Know they were endangered. Now I'm sad. So there's a few species of burying beetles but the uh, specifically the american burying beetle is is a protected species on the uh, endangered list uh, which you don't get a lot with insects you get a lot of you know mammals and birds on you get a lot the, of cute animals on the yeah you don't get a lot of uh co-parenting <laughs> mammal, <laughs> mammal burying <laughs> After you get your rove beetles and your bearing beetles and your clown beetles on there, um, you also then get the um, you get Hymenoptera parasitoids that will come in and lay eggs on the flies and the beetle and all the larvae in this whole buffet. The circle of life, you know? Yeah, so you get these parasitic wasps that are now attracted to all these things that are attracted to these other things that are attracted to the corpse, and they're joining the party. So now, when you get into kind of the black putrefaction stage, when the fat begins to go liquid and go rancid, you get uh, foridae, which are your humped back flies. You get drysophilidae, which are your fruit flies. And then you get the genus Aristales, which are your rat-tailed maggots to join the party. Um, rat-tailed maggots are in surfidae, which are your hoverflies. So hoverflies are usually pretty charismatic flies you'll see on flowers and like they're Does charismatic mean something in an entomology context? I mean it as but... just like, uh, like showy and colorful <laughs> and kind of... That's what I thought. Yeah, anyway. that's how. I, but I, I sometimes words like in science mean something di- like different than what I think they mean. So that's fair. So you get this Aristales on the this larva on there, and they don't look anything like the charismatic hoverfly. They're called rat-tailed maggots for a reason, and that's because the larvae have this long breathing tube on the on their back ends that they use to breathe in aquatic habitats. And if you think about it, a decaying body is pretty aquatic. Oh, gross. It, yeah. You get, it's hard for a larva to breathe within this liquid, uh, liquefied Mush. puddle. Mm. And so that you'll also get rat-tailed maggots in sewage and stagnant pools. But they use that same adaptation uh, to breathe in this liquid pile of flesh. Good uh, for them. When the body starts to dry and get into the dry decay stage, you get you get Dermestidae and Tinidae. Dermestids are carpet beetles. They go by a lot of name, but them and the Tinidae, which are your clothes moth larvae, they are basically there to feed on the hair, nails, and um, anything that has like hard keratin in it so they're the last ones to kind of show up to the party and uh clean up the clean up the set so really at all stages though there's yeah there's something for the bugs to nibble on yes exactly there's a stage for everyone if you're a carrion eating insect 
And also in this dry decay stage, if you look around the soil of the of where the the corpse was, you'll see rove beetle, burying beetle, and clown beetle pupa in the soil. And that's because the larva had basically all the time they needed to eat and mature and then pupate and they pupate in the soil away from where the the corpse was and so at the at the time where the dermestids and the the closed moth larvae are cleaning up the pupa of these beetles are just kind of getting ready to to pupate and uh, turn to adulthood and then finally at this time when when things are just you know on the tail end you can notice that the soil is returning to its normal kind of insect composition. While the body's there, there's so much activity and there's so much nutrients coming off the body into the soil, it will actually push out the normal soil-dwelling insects that are there because it's just, it's too much for them. And so they kind of move away from the soil. And when they start to come back is when the the body is really on the, the tail end of decay. So now I'm just gonna, I'm gonna briefly touch about forensic entomology. It's divided into three subfields: urban entomology, stored product entomology, and medical legal entomology. We're gonna be kind of discussing this from the medical legal entomology standpoint. The whole premise behind this is certain insects arrive at a predictable, I'm using air quotes, predictable point during decomposition. Forensic entomologists analyze the insects and arthropods on a body to try and determine a post-mortem interval, or PMI. This is easy in concept. Do you want to kind of guess at some of the difficulties of this? People don't die like in a temperature-controlled laboratory, right? So there's probably variables like how long, you know, if the ground was frozen, if it was hot or cold out, how the body was stored. I bet if it's like wrapped up or out in the open, it's different. If it's buried or just dumped, I bet it's different. I bet it's different if it's inside or outside. I bet there's a bunch of variables. Yeah, you covered most of them in the the important ones. I've watched a lot of crime television. So one of the things is geography. Different locations have different insects present that may have small differences in their development. There's a lot of species of blowfly out there, and the ones we have here in New York are going to be different than the ones in California, and they might just have a few days difference in their mature in their maturing time, mm. and that could just throw off your your estimate of the postmortem interval. And so knowing the species of insects that are in the area of where the the body was found is important because just because they're blowflies doesn't mean that they're all the same blowfly. To expand on that, there's difficulty in in identifying larvae. Many larvae can't be identified to the species level, and so what forensic entomologists have to do a lot of the times is take samples of the insects and rear them up in the lab. Oh, let them grow. Let them grow so they can get them mature, and it'll be easier to identify them. So you touched on the variation in ambient temperatures, and that's all... That's all dependent on sunlight, the actual like temperature of the air, uh, you know, winds. 
uh, it, what kind of shelter was the body found in? And then if it's cold, the conditions are going to slow down the process. Probably different times of year. There's different bugs. Yes. And then with climate change is probably, we kind of see some bugs at weird times that aren't carrying bugs. So. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that's going to influence the the way insects and in- interact with bodies too so uh you know that just adds to the complexity of this this process you kind of touched on everything else you know one extra thing is like was the body in water when they found it so if the the death was by drowning or the body hidden in water it can give rise to different fauna colonizing the body than if it was you know terrestrial Another thing, sorry, this is my last thing, but the substances the corpse had in the bo- in its body at the time of death can affect the way insects colonize the, the body. So scientists have found there are certain medications and illicit substances and even foods that might delay insects from colonizing it. And if you're talking about like looking at a body a few weeks to maybe a month after death, uh, you're not going to be able to really get an accurate toxicology report on that body. Right. So you're not going to really know if it had these substances in its body sometimes. It is very, very complicated. Even to, even having really good knowledge of insect biology and life history is essential for the job, but it still doesn't doesn't take away the fact that this job is very hard. I'm going to I'm going to kind of episode drop here. So I listened to an episode of the Arthropod, which is another insect podcast that you can find on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And episode 124, they had a forensic entomologist on named Dr. Crystal Hans, and she works for Purdue University and has a private consulting company. I learned a lot about forensic entomology on this podcast, and if you're looking for more information, uh, you should go and listen to this podcast. But something that she wanted to, that she really pushed for is like, this job isn't very, just hard knowledge-wise, but it's hard really, it's hard emotionally. Yeah, I bet. Because when, if you're a forensic entomologist being brought in, the body is probably decaying at this point. And I'm sure it's very hard to look at a decaying human. I don't know how many people have had to do that in their lives, but I've never had to. You know, I've seen plenty of like rotting deer on the side of the road, but I imagine there's something very psychological about seeing a rotting human and being called in to basically analyze this crime scene where this, this body is losing its, uh, you know, humanity humanity structure yeah it it is no longer like resembling a human at that at that point and i'm sure that's very tough so i know we've been like super jokey on this and everything but you know i kind of want to end on a serious note where that this is a really hard profession a lot of times these people get called in to consult for criminal cases and stuff like that. And so this is a really serious topic that has really serious real world implications to, to humans. And it, it's important what they do and it's hard what they do. And don't get CSI'd about um, you know, forensic entomology and, and how 
that show made it seem like these answers can be solved, (laughs) these crimes can be solved in in an hour. Are you talking about the body farm at all? I thought for sure you would touch on body farms. No. when I I... I took a class many years ago where somebody who, somewhere in the Midwest, there is a a farm, a body farm, a place where they intentionally stash corpses, people who have donated their bodies to science, and they intentionally stash corpses sort of in weird places so that they can gather data about decomposition. And I'm sure, in you know, I'm sure... Forensic entomology is part of that. And I took a class years ago for, with someone where someone who worked on the farm came and talked to us about like what his day to day was like working there. And oh, it was, yeah, probably brutal. It was, yeah, it was bizarre too. You know, he was, he was talking about, they wanted to see how a corpse would decompose in a car. So he was like winching this car in and out every couple of weeks to (laughs) check on this body. And that's actually, I think it was in that classes where I saw the time lapses of animal decomposition. He showed us that too. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting the way like this data is gathered, you know, there is a laboratory where they are collecting this information. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's gotta be a brutal, it's gotta be brutal, but it's also, I, I assume that there's people who are also find it like satisfying and important, you know, that there's, it seems like there's jobs that someone is suited to, you know, even if it's not me. To kind of finish on uh, Dr. Crystal Hans, she obviously talked about how hard the job it is, how hard the job is, but how rewarding it is too at the same time to to feel like you're making an impact on on people's lives and and society around you so it's a thankless job honestly working with these really cool insects but in really really bad conditions mm-hmm. and it's tough but it was a really good topic for our spooky season and i hope that people were able to learn a little about more about DK, and I hope they're not applying it to like human bodies. But if you see a, uh, a dead deer <laughs> yeah, on you, the side of the road, use all this information for good. You know, yeah. this- <laughs> if you see a dead deer on the side of the road, pull over your Honda Civic, get out your <laughs> get out your blue latex gloves, and go and look at the deer carcass for for insects because that's what i was doing when i was trying to get specimens for my collection i was driving around my shitty honda civic with gloves on the passenger seat and a and a kill jar next to me and i was just going and looking at at dead raccoons on the side of the road this is why you shouldn't ever drive too nice of a car you know you'll never know if you you had like nice leather seats you'd be like "Mm, i don't think i'm committed enough to pick through a raccoon and get back in my nice car. But if you drive a shitbox, yeah, you're more willing. And then I was able to put those gross, dirty gloves right on the passenger seat. Not my own seat. So whoever my passengers are, they get to get to deal with that. But I was I was very <laughs> neat about it. I was I did the very professional like fold the gloves inside out as they're taking them off and then disposed of them immediately when I got home and washed my hands and washed my phone and anything I touched. So that concludes our episode for today. I hope you all enjoyed listening and remember to stay spineless.
We're talking about... We're not talking about The Last Airbender, right? No. We're talking about... We're talking about the blue aliens. I thought he wrote them. He probably did. I believe it. Because James Cameron does what James Cameron does. And he writes, he directs, he probably does all the casting 